People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Fine Music Radio and it's Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. My guest today is the South African Neo Muyanga, a composer, musician, director, and philosopher. He was born in Soweto, where he grew up during those hard years of student protests. At first, he studied natural sciences and philosophy at the United World College in Trieste in Italy. And then an extraordinary teacher acquainted him with choral music and the tradition of madrigals, and this inspired love for the telling of stories in musical form. And next he started to inquire into the Italian tradition of madrigals under the supervision of the much-loved choral director Piero Poclin, also in Trieste in Italy. Neo writes plays and composes chamber music as well as operas. So lots to discover about you, Neo. Welcome to Fine Music Radio. Thank you, Rodney. It's, it's lovely to be here. You told me that you live between Johannesburg and Cape Town because my first question was going to be why are you here? Something about an installation? Yes, uh, well, a, a number of things. I came to do some work at the Bertha House, and there'll be an installation afterwards. So it'll be a performance, and then I will um, set up some materials that I've made around themes of protest. Um, what and sort then of materials do you mean? Are, are uh, sort of images or photographs? So there the are images that I've drawn mm-hmm. uh, and, and animations that come out of those images. Um, also sound pieces, sound um, work that I make for that kind of material. And it it, it follows um, a series of conversations I, I, I will be making around the theme of exile and the theme of protest and protest song in particular. Mm-hmm. As I said, you grew up during the worst times really as a young man um, in South Africa, the hard years, as it says here, of student protests. So that obviously has influenced you, hasn't it, in your thinking and your creativity um, over the years, I'm I'm sure. It is a very big influence. I mean, I think from the perspective of a chorus, because of those days, because I grew up um, having um, chants and collective song around me. Some of it was choral music. Some of it was uh, songs that were chanted on the streets. There was always music that was made collectively. And so that is very much how I see composition and my particular voice in composition always proceeds from, from the perspective of the chorus. Yeah. Was your family musical? I mean, obviously you had a musical talent from early on, which, as you say, you picked up from singing and all that, the piano, all these things. Did your family involve themselves in music? Uh, I don't know of any professional musicians in my family. But everyone sings to the point where people think it's strange that I get paid to <laughs> sing. <laughs> they think, well, we can also do that. Why is that so special? So I have, I have some of those conversations with family members. Everyone is musical, I guess, yeah, mm-hmm. from where I come from. There is a part of my family, my grandfather's side of the family, which originally came from Mozambique, uh, Chopi people. And in that environment, we were known as the instrument makers, the makers of Dimbila. And so that becomes a long 700-year history. Oh, uh, 700 years? A lineage, yeah. Good grief. And it's from Mozambique? Yeah. 
Yeah. So instrument makers uh, have been making these kind of personalized pieces for generations. Mm-hmm. And what's said is, uh, if you know your stuff and you're walking in those villages, maybe this was only in the past, you could recognize who had made a particular instrument based on the tuning because they're not tempered uh, scales. They are to do with the, the way people hear music and assimilate uh, tonality in those particular areas, those villages, those, mm-hmm. those families. In other words, they assimilate it differently. They assimilate tonality differently. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, right. So you can't play all of that stuff on a well-tempered clavier. Yes, <laughs> right. Bach wouldn't have worked. <laughs> um, Neo, but the piano was a big part of your life, wasn't it, right from the beginning? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell you. My first piano teacher was my history teacher. And um, she would give me extracurricular lessons outside of school. And she thought I had an aptitude. But really, I was just interested in um, translating what I was hearing in my head into fingering. But I wasn't interested in the piano per se. So I didn't become a pianist at that point. Mm -hmm. And then when I was at college in Italy, I had joined a band. It was a rock band. And we were doing reasonably well for a local uh, kind of village rock band and then the guitarist who I thought was very talented his name was Pietro Stella he retired uh, as a 19 year old he said I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore I'm going to study economics because I want to be rich <laughs> it was at that point that I thought well I, I really I'm going to go back to learning an instrument so that I can do this myself and not be told by someone I have to uh, retire from your band mm-hmm. and so I started actually on guitar to take lessons and then started to write songs seriously on guitar. It was only a couple of years later that I remembered my training at the piano, so I went back to the piano. Okay. Um, and now I, and I go back and forth between both of them. Am I right in saying I've got this completely wrong? Am I right in saying that I would have seen you years and years ago, around about 2006, which was my first year in Cape Town, at a Fuhrkama Fierce in Darling? Yes. Where we all went to those houses, and one of them you were playing, you were doing a little recital. Is that possible? Absolutely. Uh, in ah. fact, that was a memorable moment for me. It was one of my favorite festivals to play. Mm-hmm. We were in somebody's home. That's right. It was a small room. You had about six people there, eight people. It was really intimate, really uh, quiet. I could really, you know, be improvisational and 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 I could be conversational, yes, and intimate. Yeah, intimate it, with was the audience. Really, it was very special. I'm glad I remembered that little bit. <laughs> Let's have uh, your first piece of music. And Neo, I see you've chosen. Well, we know that you have very eclectic tastes in everything, including opera. But um, you've chosen Stravinsky as your first choice, the Symphony of Psalms. Is there a story behind this? A reason? I I really love Stravinsky because it was. Um, through discovering his music that I realized um, there could be another conversation around classical music that wasn't premised on um, Western design Mm -hmm. um, as the pinnacle uh, because the Russians had started their own uh, strategies of uh, perceiving music and theory uh, in their own indigenous way. So they had started to, I would say, maskandarize music. Um, <laughs> right. And because I I have a strong love for Maskanda, I read that as a you know as a sign that we could also do that and we could uh, we could play in that space. Neil, what is Maskanda? Sorry, Maskanda is a 
It's Zulu music, urban Zulu music, okay. and it's when it's when a Zulu musician, usually working in the mines or in the urban areas, will take a guitar or what we call a crostina, a concertina, and retune it so it speaks in Isizulu. So you play pentatonic Zulu music from materials that are made for kind of conventional Western diatonic music. So it's a way of turning something and subverting it to speak your language. And it's a way of building bridges between cultures. Okay, so how does this all relate to the Symphony of Psalms by Stravinsky? His writing for The Voice um, is premised on the art of singing in the Russian Orthodox Church. And so the references there are very different to what you'll hear, for example, in Bach. Um, and that's what really resonated for me is there's a whole new world of music. That led me into um, investigating quite a lot of Russian music at that point, vocal Russian music, which I love.
that's part of the Symphony of Psalms by Stravinsky, and it was the first choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Neo Muyanga, who, as I said earlier and as we're discovering, is a composer, musician, director, and philosopher. We'll come to philosophy in a moment. But, Neo, first of all, what I wanted to know was, how did you end up in Italy? What took you from South Africa to Italy to Trieste for a period which seems to be very important in your life? I won uh, a scholarship. It was granted by the United World College's um, institution. And it really, uh, yeah, it opened up all kinds of possibilities. I was 15, just about to turn 16 at the time. So I was just in matric, didn't actually uh, manage to complete matric year because the matric uh, year would have ended in December Mm -hmm. and I had to start there in September. So I kind of was shuffled along um, into a sixth form college. And... Uh, when I arrived, I didn't speak any Italian, so it took a while to get bearings. Mm-hmm. So what I did was join the choir because it was uh, <laughs> uh, my my defense mechanism yeah. is how to get to know people. And did you pick up Italian quite easily? We had to learn Italian formally, oh, okay. so I had to have okay. um, lessons in Italian, and I had mm. lessons taught in Italian. And um, so I learned formal Italian, but I also learned street. Uh, very rude Italian from the old men who used to play bocciofila in, okay. the, in the town square. So I can speak um, formal um, Italian, but I can also speak um, a version of the dialect. But now tell me the story about Piero Poklen, the much-loved choral director that I mentioned in the opening, who apparently had a, another big impact on you. Yes, Piero I regard as my master um, in the sense that he heard through my nervousness the voice that um, he thought I might be able to exhibit later. So when I was in the choir, he used to call me il mio tenore, his tenor. Uh, and he used to make all kinds of uh, overtures for me to come out more. I wanted to lean back and he constantly wanted to move forward. And at some point he said to me, you know, you have the kind of voice that could do um, a different kind of music. Have you heard of madrigals? And I hadn't. And he said, well, come and join my special troupe. That special troupe used to meet at his house in Monfalcone, which was slightly outside of the village where we were studying. We were at school. Um, so I learned about this other tradition from him, and he really shifted my understanding of what I thought Western and European music was, because madrigals, to me, reminded me of traditions that we have at home, So cycle songs, collective songs, but also intimate songs that involve a lot of melisma, a lot of um, vocal acrobatics, Mm -hmm. which if you have a big voice, that doesn't always come easily. Because it's difficult. I'm told that magical singing is a special art form, actually. The blending of the voices, the the phrasing, the style, it's very different from the big choral requiems and tadeums and things. Absolutely. It's a lot more similar to our traditional indigenous music mm-hmm. uh, that is choral, that is sung in a collective. And that resonated with me. Um, I didn't know at the time what exactly that was. My theory wasn't up to scratch. But I, but I really am interested in how that tells us something different, at least told me something different about what I understood to be an established Western practice. Because madrigals are pre-classical. Yes, it's not classical are. music it's at pre- all. Yes, right? it's pre-classical. 
Renaissance sort of era, I think, yeah. somewhere around there. But um, and that experience, did that had you at this point had you started writing anything, music? No. You were studying and learning. Yeah, at this point, I was a, a student. I I wanted to be a physicist. Oh, uh, yes, that yes. was my intention. And the soft subject that I had was philosophy, and I and I found out I love philosophy. I'm not a philosopher. I wouldn't call myself a okay, philosopher, okay. but but I am interested. I'm a student of uh, the philosophy. Of others, do you uh, know why? Why am I? You interested in philosophy? Yes, yes. I I find life as we live it a complex mystery, and I'm interested in discovering why that complex mystery uh, reads so differently to each of us. We all have our own universe we exist in, yet we're confined inside of a shared existence. So we have to have language, we have to have behaviors, we have to have um, habits that that pull us into uh, collectives, but that is in tension with our sense of self, sense of identity. And then we look deeper inside ourselves and we realize there are those tensions of identities also within. So the idea of the human experience has always interested me and how to contemplate it is is of particular interest mm. so i write music and i make work i make art premised on understanding the human experience so my particular human experience is through the the, the language and the lens of soweto as a kid growing up uh, in the last decade and a half of apartheid right? i take that into everything i do um, whether or not that's articulated it's in fact very much the basis of my outlook on life. So it determines my philosophy in many ways. Um, so philosophy kind of is, I mean, it's in the price of bread. Right? <laughs> I can see it because sometimes we think of philosophy as being a rather dry, abstruse subject. But as you say, you can look at it very much as part of all of our lives, which is what you're doing really, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I mean, I I've been reading a lot of Nietzsche lately. Oh, I was going to ask you who your favorite philosopher might be. I'm not sure if he's my favorite, but he's certainly one that um, lights yeah. me up whenever I read him. Because there are always um, electric moments when reading Nietzsche that make you feel, oh, is, should I be offended or should I be fascinated? <laughs> and he, he, he challenges you, doesn't he? Absolutely. And your beliefs. Absolutely. I mean, his fundamental statement in, in the birth of tragedy about you know, life is suffering mm. and it would be great were we never born that would be the best but second best to that is if you manage to die quickly third to that is just accept that you are here to suffer I mean these are the three premises yeah that's pretty uh, <laughs> it's pretty rough going especially <laughs> for a young man I pretty rough yeah and Schopenhauer well, I mean, Schopen uh, Nietzsche is in conversation with Schopenhauer that's in many right, ways, right? right yeah. So Schopenhauer is interesting because, because again, uh, the idea is to expect the existence is confining, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're here out of a will that you may not necessarily understand, you may not necessarily share, but you have techniques and you have technologies for surviving that, which is what philosophy is. Philosophy mm -hmm. is a way of... Um, surviving. Yes, a technique, uh, as you say. I never yeah. thought of that. Yeah, it's a you know why I asked you about Schopenhauer was because of the huge impact he had on Wagner. Oh, right. Uh, which was one of my favorite composers, especially right. the sort of concept behind Tristan and Isolde. Right. And Parsifal. 
I've just returned from Bayreuth, the, tem- oh, no. the temple of Wagner. <laughs> I gave it. I was giving a talk at a conference. Did you see anything? Was it no? Was anything on? No, no. It, not fe- yet. No, of course not. Yet. The festival hadn't started yet. Right. Yeah. Had you, did you go to the festival house? Yes. The festival house. Yes. Oh dear! <laughs> now you've annoyed me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Let's have another piece of music, and we've got some opera here. From Gianniskiki by Puccini, what what have you chosen? I see you've avoided the very popular aria, O Mio Babino Caro. It's a beautiful aria, and I think everybody knows it. Yeah. Um, Gianniskiki is, is is a wonderful opera. It's a one-act opera, mm. very funny, very contemporary, lasts about an hour or so. So it's very easygoing, but there is a lot of complexity in it uh, to do with the orchestration and how the themes just return and are repurposed. Mm. I've th- I found that very inspiring as a composer to study those scores. Um, I've learned very many things, particularly from that opera and, and, and some others by Puccini and, of course, other composers as well. But this aria, which is sung by Gianni Schicchi at Dio Firenze, is, uh, it reminds me of a time when I went to visit Florence. And because the visit to Florence was particularly because I was interested in Dante's uh, tale centered around the Middle Ages and how there were evil people and there were pious people in a community. Mm. And he writes a story about how they all end up meeting in hell. And and Janiskiki is doing things in life that will lead to hell. He's thinking about this beautiful city that will ultimately be the, the, the end and the death of all. <laughs> Adio Firenzo, let's listen to that. Avete torto, e fine, astuto, ogni malizia di leggi e compiti, conoscessa, motteggiatore, perfeggiatore, c'è da fare una beffa nuova e rara, e già di schicchi che la prepara gli occhi furbi illuminando il riso lo strano viso ombreggiato da questo gran nasone che pare un torracchione per così viene dal contero ebbene che vuol dire con queste oppie grette piccine Vivenze come un albero fiorito che piazza dei signori a tronca e fronte ma le radici forse nuove apportano dalle convalli limpide e conte Croce, e il suo 
there from Puccini's opera Janiskiki, Adio Fiorenzo. And it was another choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, the composer, musician, director and philosopher, as we've discovered, Neo Muyanga. Neo, just listening to that and talking about your passion, I thought, for opera there with Janiskiki, among others, I wonder what it was that attracted you to opera. Was it Italy? Because you've written operas, um, The Flower of Shembe, and Heart of Redness, among others. You know, uh, it's a funny story with me and opera. I didn't actually like opera in the beginning. I found it, as I think many people in the world find it, pretentious and elitist. <laughs> yes. And so okay, I, you've said it. <laughs> I, was very, I was very offended uh, <clears throat> by how unrealistic the voices sound and the, the scenography proceeds and the action was, was I thought, uh, stilted in some ways. And really it was because I didn't get it. I didn't have a key. I didn't have access mm-hmm. into it. Um, I was always interested in music theater because, again, I come from music theater. So it was full of dramas that were told through music. I, I was a fan of Gibson Kente from when I was very young. I saw uh, the original Sarafina at the market theater, um, and that influenced me politically but also musically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bungeni is a is a is a songwriter that I really, really treasure. I won't say much about <laughs> other things that have happened around him. Okay. Um, so that was how I saw my work. And my first job when I finished in Italy was working in a theater company in the UK, writing music for plays to accompany theater. Like incidental music. Incidental music. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and so my tradition was music inside of theater, music with actors. And the sung content was generally either related to speech or it was popular music. Opera just seemed a stretch too far. And then I started realizing at a certain point that actually stories were being told with all of these Gesam Kunstwerk, right? This idea of the sonography, the idea of the balletic, the idea of the costuming. So the point was to understand the story and to care about the story and the characters. Uh, So it took me about 10 years of just continual listening to opera. And, and making <laughs> and you persevered, obviously. Yes, because I wanted to understand what it was about it that repulsed me. So I would look at scores and I tried to understand what composers were actually doing. Yeah. And then I tried to watch um, as many of them as I could. And, and eventually I actually became aware that it's very similar to what we do. And, and the idea of the stu- what I thought was stultified movement 
really is simply stylized. It's it's related to some might say old Greek tragedy, right? Performed with masks, and and, and the the movements had to be very defined, and the costuming had to be very specific, and so you could read it like that in a certain way. I also became aware when I moved to Cape Town that um, opera is attracting a lot of young black singers. And I was very uh, confused about why would young black singers who come from um, marginalized communities who don't really have access to music theory be interested in studying this tradition. That opened my eyes to how relatable it was to people who look like me, sound like me, and come from places that are like mine. Um, and so I started to investigate how people come to opera in the first instance. I remember Angelo Gobato was, was still running Cape Town Opera, and he was also teaching at uh, the university. And he knew that I spoke Italian. So when, I, when we first met, he said, would you, he asked if I would be interested to become an Italian tutor, which I was interested in, but I was touring a lot at the time, so mm-hmm. it, didn't, it didn't actually happen. We eventually got to do some work together because I used to come to Artscape a lot. But through him, I started to understand that, in fact, the opera class is very, very full of young black singers. Uh, and the question for me was, how do they become so good at opera at university without having had prior training? I realized there's a relationship between how they sing in the opera and how the township performs choral music, which was my background. Oh, that's interesting. So that which became true, yes. even closer to me. And that was how I, I opened up more and more to the operatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was there a particular opera that opened the door for you or a particular style of opera? I suppose I'm thinking of the Mozart style or the Puccini Verdi style or the I, German style or the Russian style. Well, I was very keen on Verdi right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Macbetto was was very interesting. Otello was it Macbetto? Otello. But I found I found um, the lyricism of Italian voices again very uh, reminiscent of the voices that we have here at home, and something about um, how the choruses um, work really resonated with me in terms of how we sing choral music. Uh, the, the choirs that I favor here can can perform in that in that lyrical kind of yes, um, yes, bel canto yes. style. Yeah. And that for me was, the I think, the first foray. And then you went on to write operas. Gosh, so it obviously did get into your blood somehow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... I think... Um, I think uh, you know, you gave all these titles to me, but really, what I am is a is a really good student. I think, <laughs> so I can I can a really of the world. I can really get stuck in to things that are that are interesting. We're going to take another music break now, and this time we go to Monteverdi. So we go far back, as you were saying when you were choosing the music, to before the classical tradition. Tell me about this piece and why you've chosen it. This is a piece that I used to sing in in, uh, in Piero Pocklin's um, madrigal chorus. So it's very dear to me because it reminds me of the voices that I used to be part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me of a time in life where a lot of this music, this particular cycle of songs comes from the frivolities of everyday life. Right? And I suspect like the Decameron, it was written at a time of crisis. It was close to the time of the plague, right, um, right. around 14th century. Yeah. So, so actually what was happening out in the world was pretty scary and apocalyptic. So the composer at that point might have decided to be uh, celebratory of the, of the silliness that 
used to be available or the hoped for silliness that might occur. So, so there's something about it that is, yeah, frivolous, but the frivolity is really crafted very, very finely and very well. That's music by Monteverdi, all the way from where? The, with 1400s, 1500s, round about there. Neil, I think, uh, from there I think it's 1400s. 1400s. Io mio son giovanetta. And Neil Muyanga is my guest, and that was another of his choices. After having spoken about opera and the things you do, uh, and writing opera, noch al, as they say, you have also been the composer in residence at things like the 9th Johannesburg International Mozart Festival with Richard Koch and company. And did you write, were you required to write things there as composer in residence, I suppose you were? Yes. For performance during that festival? Yes, in fact, in fact, what happened there is I was told um, that my presentation, the, the, the work that I was commissioned to write, w- would be sandwiched between a piece by Mozart <laughs> and a piece by Beethoven. Oh dear! <laughs> so, did that intimidate you uh, or challenge you? It challenged me. Ah, good. Daily, daily. Uh, I love Beethoven. I'm interested in Mozart, but I'm much more sentimental about Beethoven. Good. And the work had to be relatable. They were both works in E flat uh, major, so my work was in E flat major. Um, so it was trying to be in conversation with many, 
with many parts of what they were making, but also trying to reach both sides of mm-hmm. this of this mm-hmm. uh, trajectory. I I enjoyed that happening very very much, and and uh, the team were very wonderful to me there. Oh, good. But when it, just going back a bit, I think a lot of people know you. Um, from the mid 1990s, the Black Sunshine Group was it two guitars, you and another chap. Yeah, two acoustic guitars, myself and Masoko Chibembere. Masoko grew up in the US, but he's the child of Malawians who were in exile in the US. So he was an African forlorn, and we met in Yeovil. We were both living in Yeovil at the time. And we just shared this fascination with what acoustic music could do, but also particularly guitars. You could carry them. We used to play in street corners, clubs. We played concert halls. We played two stadia. Uh, so we did many, many things. Um, and he's a dear friend. He's my brother. We had a, a good run of about 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. The work is still uh, resonating with many people, but we don't play uh, together a lot anymore. Okay, so you've moved on, basically. Partly. I mean, one never moves on from a great love, no? No, that is very true. That is very true. But now the other thing, you co-founded the Pan-African Space Station, which he has described as a web-based platform for sharing contemporary music, art, and thought. Tell me about how that came into being. That was founded with another very dear friend and brother of mine, Ntone Jabe who's the publisher and founder of uh, Chimurenga, which is a journal of African thought. Um, it is in print, but it also exists online. Mm-hmm. And I was a great fan of his um, life. He's a DJ, very, very uh, amazing DJ of African music. And wherever he plays in the world, I think people just break into a, a party. Uh, so I was a fan. They used to have a, a venue here on Long Street, and I used to be a fan of going to their Kalakuta sessions on Fridays Mm -hmm. and we talk a lot about music Mm -hmm. and we had constant conversations about where are the platforms to find out about experimental African music and we couldn't find one so we decided to invent one and that was the Pan-African Space Station (laughs) and we have the name Pan-African Space Station it was inspired by the Zambe Fusse there was a time in Africa in the 70s where a number of African leaders uh, some might call them African dictators, wanted to make a, a statement about how we in Africa also have futuristic um, intentions and technologies. And, and, and they made rockets that were going to go up into space. There was one particular such rocket that left one part of East Africa and proceeded to make a parabola motion and then <laughs> settle, settle back about a kilometer or so. Uh, later, so so we were inspired by this kind of idea of yeah, yeah. how do we as Africans hack the space race, right? And how do we make it uh, a musical endeavor? So a lot of it was about finding the most outlier, uh, experimental, edgy African music from anywhere in the continent and then in the diaspora to invite those players to perform in Cape Town. So we had a a well-running festival for three years, and we invited people who we could afford. And by that, I mean, there were big names that were just about to become global, massive names. Mm. So we could just get them for the <laughs> window in, where yes, we could afford yes. them. And we had uh, the support of the Africa Center. So we brought them here. They played a show in town and then another show in the township because the idea was when, we, when you move yourself out of the dimension of the floor and you move into space, the distance between town and township actually becomes minuscule. So it was about 
having a different conversation around distance and architecture, particularly as it applies to the apartheid construct of how we make our cities. So it was a it was a project mm. about space. It was a project about uh, culture, and it was a space about bringing people together who might not necessarily be expected to to spend time together. My goodness. I want you to tell me this next piece of music that we're going to have now featured on an album of the King Singers, the world-famous King Singers. In Corsi Sikilele, the hymn, but just tell me the story. You arranged it for the King Singers. Yeah, I got a call from, from them uh, a number of years ago, maybe four years ago, to say they were interested. They knew that I work on, on protest song, and they wondered if I could um, give them an entry into uh, the protest tradition in Southern Africa because they were looking at uh, protest um, as a medium around the world. They had some work in uh, Latin America they were interested in. They had work in um, the Middle East they were interested in. And so I said, yeah, the one piece for me that, that does this work is um, the original version of uh, Inok Sontonga's Ngosi Sigalili Africa, which is a prayer that I learned as a kid in an Anglican church. In, um, in the 80s. So it wasn't necessarily a song that sounded protest. It was a song that was offered as a supplication to God, to the Creator, to, to benefit all who live in this land. Um, and reading up about it, it was written um, at a time when um, what we now know as the ANC was founded. And it was first performed in the 1920s where, in fact, the ANC uh, became a political movement of the broad church. So it tells a lot of the story of how we've become who we've become, and I wanted to share that with them. And they were very open to it. So I made an arrangement that also took liberties with some of the parts and yeah. to uh, redesigned it in, in, in a style that also reflects some of the, the habits of contemporary composition. Mm -hmm. So now I'm keen to hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> Gosi Sikeleli Africa, Malupakani Sutumorayo, Iswahili Tanda Zoyetu, Gosi Sikelela Tina Lusapolwayo.
Who fed this first time I've heard that. That was my guest, Nio Muyanga's arrangement of Inkosisikilele Africa, sung by the King Singers on one of their albums. And Nio, we've, as always, we run out of time and time races when it shows that you're very interesting. So thank you for the stories you've been telling. But um, I just want you to comment briefly. They say you mentor young composers, encourage them to remix music. Is that part of your your remit? Do you, do you enjoy encouraging young composers? I do, I do. And I, all and styles, presumably. Yes, I'm in touch with many composers who find me to ask me to listen to what they've written. So I have, I have a lot of interactions with singer-songwriters, young classical composers. And I think the thing about remixing the work, it relates to the Russian story, making it reflect your voice, so mm-hmm. your window, your particular um, posture from this country, writing whatever kind of music. That's what I would call remixing. So do you lecture? How do you, how do you mentor these young composers? Do you spend some of your time lecturing, teaching? Uh, I do. Uh, not lecturing because I'm not a full-on teacher, but I make seminar work. Mm-hmm. I, I'm affiliated to the University of Cape Town, so I write uh, quite a bit academically around composition and African composition particularly, but I also work with um, Magnet Theatre that has a training program. So I, I've been running a series of workshops around music theatre for the young trainees and interns there. Right. And I do that kind of work also in the Netherlands uh, and in uh, Brazil. So you still do travel quite a lot? I travel too much, I think. I, I'm <laughs> trying shame. to stop. I would love to stop. Yeah. Because you have a family, don't you? Uh, n- well, not my own nuclear family, but I have a home family right, in, right, right. in Soweto, so I spend a lot of my time there. But I've been away from them since I was 10, mm-hmm. so there's nothing new about uh, me traveling around for them. <laughs> right, okay. And then just as a final thought, it sounds as though you're very busy. You have been very busy. You must experience a very enriching life. Is there anything exciting coming up now towards the end of the year that we need to keep a lookout for? Ah, yes, there are two things. Uh, I'm spending October in the US, in New York. I I have a a solo exhibition at a new center called CARA, 
which is Midtown in the West. And I'll be showing some uh, video work and some animations. And I'll be making a new sound work with a chorus that I'm putting together there. So that'll be fun for people who are across the seas. <laughs> back <laughs> what here about in, us? Back here in Cape Town, I have a residency at the Irma Stern Gallery in November. Mm-hmm. I will show some work, uh, visual work, but also sound work that I'll be making. Uh, and I'll also be giving artist walkabouts for, for those who are interested on some weekends. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, let us know about that so we can tell our listeners as well. But just now we're going to end at last with one of your real compositions played by Rene Resnick. What are we going to hear? The title of the piece is Hade Data. Hade is a colloquial kind of Soweto term, which means sorry. And it's a a reflection on what somebody like me might have had to say to a character, a figure like Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, the generation, as opposed to Nelson Mandela, the individual, about what the things we were complicit in that are wrong in the country and in our cities today. So it's 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 a kind of a a statement of uh, this fault and and expressing a hope for where we might go. This is what I think. It's instrumental, so you're not going to hear that in any text. <laughs> but it's what you think, and it came out on the page to be played. Yeah. And Rezne Resnick is in a play for us. Neo Muyanga, thank you for being a fascinating guest, and I'm sure we'll talk again sometime. Thank you, Rodney.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR one.